I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle, and as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, a conversation with risk and climate behavioral scientist, Dr. Shetha Chakraborty. Stay tuned. Okay, let me know if you feel me on this one, but navigating through 2022 sometimes is a constant survey of risk. When things go right, there's a sigh of relief, but then trying to weigh data and predict outcomes makes almost every decision a perpetual breath-holding spell. By the way, thank you for holding your breath long enough to get at least a temporary sigh of relief in listening to the show and sharing it with your friends, for subscribing, rating, and downloading the podcast at your favorite outlets, and for following us on social media at Dr. Abhaydandekar. Considering the global pandemic, economic turbulence, geopolitics, healthy living, community building, and of course the big one, climate action, each decision, whether small and personal or large and collective, has an impact. Measuring risk, understanding behaviors, and using data to communicate effectively and create policy requires science and rational expertise, a confluence that finds many looking to the thought leadership of Dr. Sheta Chakraborty. Sheta is a risk and behavioral scientist who studied at Carnegie Mellon and King's College in Oxford and whose work concentrates currently on climate action and solutions. She's a much sought after media speaker on CNN and MSNBC, and yes, even Fox News. She's the US president for We Don't Have Time, the world's largest platform for climate solutions. Sheta is an author, a scholar, and a globally recognized speaker, and she's a trusted authority on proactive preparedness for the impacts of climate change, motivated by the need for clear, credible, evidence-based communication. Now, I had a chance to catch up with her about her work, about everyday decisions, and the issues facing leaders as they communicate and build trust. Sheta proudly bills herself as a radical centrist, but I first wanted to know if her devotion to rational thinking still gets her billed as an alarmist. Ooh, I still get that tag. (laughs) Nobody likes anyone to speak rationally, right? That's not fun for the media. That doesn't get clicks. That's not the headlines that get picked up when you're skimming a paper. So unfortunately, alarmists work on either side of the political spectrum because it is, it's how we're wired as individuals. It's what we pay attention to. Things that are sensational are what we want to give our cognitive energy towards better processing and understanding. And We as human beings are not wired to process stimuli that isn't right in front of our face or that is delayed or that is perceived as slow moving or far away. These are things that our ancestors never had to worry about. So our brains haven't evolved since then, since the dawn of our species, what, 200,000 years ago? What our ancestors had to worry about were getting away from, you know, actual active threats in front of them, snakes, tigers, fire, that kind of thing. And society has evolved significantly. The risk landscape around us has evolved significantly. We don't have to worry about those immediate risks in the same way that we did. But our brain wiring has stayed very much the same. So 
we don't respond to the risks that we really need to be paying attention to that are real risks for humanity now, like infectious disease outbreaks, right? Um, mm. Or climate change. These are still viewed as invisible or uh, microscopic, slow moving, far away, things that people had to worry about in the future, not now. Now, the media sure. has picked up on this, has become really good at <laughs> recognizing what gets people's attention and engagement. And so alarmism is actually a product of our cognitive brains and how we process information and really what sells. And even those scientists, even those radically centrists like myself that would wish otherwise are still designated as alarmists at some point so as to get attention to the points that they are raising or making. I'm curious back to the sort of idea of making choices and risk and how we protect ourselves and how we defend ourselves and prioritize. I mean, I'm, I'm curious how you explain this one. You know, me personally, I would fight tooth and nail to protect and advocate for kids, for safety, for climate action. But, but my priorities are perhaps often in disarray. I'm risk averse in that I'll put on my safety belt, my seatbelt when I'm driving and ensure that actually everyone around me is wearing theirs. But, but I have less of a problem flying on vacation, taking a very costly, fuel inefficient uh, plane um, driving an SUV to the store to buy the lardus and jalebis and chocolate chip cookies <laughs> that are eventually going to accelerate not only my own demise, but the whole process is, is accelerating the demise of the planet. So I'm not necessarily paying attention to that long-term risk in the same way that I am in the short for the short term. Is, is that sort of, in a nutshell, where we're at in, in 2022? That really is what it is. We are phenomenal at ignoring the bigger picture or the risks that are uh, hard to perceive. F fair enough. Because again, we just, yeah. we never really needed to do it. And how do we get our brains to evolve to this, this reality that we find ourselves in, which is truly existential? This could, if we don't get a grip on the climate crisis, this could not, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say, uh, completely see the demise of our species, but it will cause widespread human suffering. And that is something that our brains just don't have the capacity or potential to even comprehend. We as human mm. beings are meant to be in tribes of people, really no more than like 150 to 200 people. That That's the extent of trusted relationships that we can yeah. remember, engage in over the course of our lives. And now we live on a shared planet of almost 10 billion people. By 2050, will be 10 billion people. And these are yeah. people that are in contact with one another with the technology that can connect, you know, somebody in a, in a country thousands of miles away in a matter of seconds, yeah. if not milliseconds. This is beyond anything that our very much beta version of the computer, which is our brain, can even begin to begin to comprehend and process. So yeah, it's it's we we have to not be so hard on ourselves in that sense too. Like I can hear it in your voice, like, you know, here I am going to um wanting to like enjoy a trip and eat sweets. And yeah. while I'm doing that, I'm I'm ushering in my carbon footprint. And that's not a good thing. Like you're adding carbon emissions just for some simple pleasures of travel and food. We need to not be so hard on ourselves because um, mm. we, we're all, we're not wired. We're not wired to recognize the collateral damage of our choices and our actions, right? The consequences of making these decisions. We, so we need to, we need to not be so hard on ourselves, be compassionate with one another, but then be very 
clear that there's an opportunity here to learn, to educate, and to change our collective behaviors to still enjoy our lives. We deserve energy-rich lives. Everybody does in a way that is sustainable. That's the key. Are, are we at some point just seemingly at least so overwhelmed with data that we simply are defending against discomfort or change management or, or even the effort that it takes to act? I mean, you raise a, a huge point when it comes to guilt um, driving in some of the things that we do. And what is the power or maybe the unfortunate nature of, of so much data that's in front of us? It's really overwhelming. We are always asking for more information as a public. Generally, we think we want more information, right? So we can make better decisions, but our brains really do turn off at some point. So you're bringing me back to my uh, PhD days of a, which I wasn't, <laughs> I haven't thought you about. And I, you weren't defending your thesis today. Or? Right. Well, I haven't thought about some of this in a while because I, I'm so immersed yeah. now in working on climate and policy and communicating solutions to the public and getting, you know, policy to support those solutions and the public to support. And, and I ask that because it, as someone who is really a leader focused on communicating message, there's such this delicate balance between overwhelming people with data and finding a way to have that message spread and scale. Oh, you're no, you're exactly right. And so the reason I was bringing up uh, this, that this is taking me back to my PhD days is because I did do a lot of research on exactly this topic. Like what is the yeah. right amount of information to communicate? Is there a point where it becomes noise? It becomes counterproductive? It's just too much? And the answer to that is yes. We think we want information. We demand information. Consumers are like, I want to know what's in my food. I want to know every single side effect affiliated with this prescription drug. The reality is that once you present publics with more information, not only at best, it's not processed in any negative way. And at worst, it's actually results in outcomes that you don't want to see. So for example, somebody demanding uh, more information about what's in their food or in their uh, as a pediatrician, you'll appreciate this, in a chemical molecular entity, a prescription drug, right? And mm. publics are asking and demanding to know the chemicals that make up that drug or the food components that make up that uh, food choice. And then ultimately, once they get all that information, because it is so much information and a lot of it are words that are too big <laughs> for most people, including myself, to understand and to process, the, the end result, the behavioral outcome is a... Uh, sweeping distrust of it all. So now you see patients yeah. responding and saying, I'm not going to take this drug because there's just way too many things in it. And they're the ones who wanted to know what was in it, thinking it would bring more trust in the actual product or in the doctor prescribing the product. But more information mm. can be really counterproductive and it can result in outcomes that you don't want to see. It can re result in rejection of a drug and rejection of a food. Too much information is not necessarily a good thing. People think they want it, but ultimately we need to communicate responsibly. Those who actually know and understand the different things that are being discussed here, whether it's health experts, food experts, chemical experts, energy experts, right? How much yeah. information do different communities and publics need to know to make the best decisions for themselves, their communities, and then more broadly as a global collective? And that isn't patriarchal. That's actually just yeah. giving people information in line with how much they can truly process for the best outcomes for that individual and their communities. 
sort of a side question, even with that, um, Jetta, is is that a tough juxtaposition to have as someone who's based their careers in science and curiosity, that intellectual constant, you know, seeking of the next question? Oh, that's a good question. And I think scientists really grapple with this and have grappled with it. It's why the science community, especially the climate science community, and they always get mad at me for saying this, but I'm sorry, as a behavioral and communication <laughs> scientist, I, I can definitely get my community of behavioral scientists behind me. We did not do the communication of climate correctly for decades. We just information sure. dumped. And climate scientists, especially scientists broadly, Exactly. Pursue, have this intellectual curiosity of their discipline. They pursue it. They're proud of it. They're passionate about it. And for them, the data dictates decisions and policies. But when that is then communicated as a data dump, as more numbers, as more statistics, what you get sure. from publics and policymakers, who are really just people who represent different publics, right? What you get from publics and policymakers are um, pushback or uh, a lot of just ignoring because it's too much data. It's too much information. People turn off. And again, I was saying at best, maybe they turn off at worst. They actually do things against what you're intending or hoping people do. Yep. So behavioral science and communication science will say there's a science behind communicating science. <laughs> and <laughs> that hasn't been applied. We have to be very careful about how we communicate the data is not going to change. The science isn't going to change. Climate scientists can relax on that. They can be proud of the evidence and the facts and the data that has been proven robust over so much, um, so many repeated experiments, right? So that won't change. Yeah. But how we package the information, how we communicate it, and most critically, who communicates it? Who is the trusted spokesperson mm. to actually reach a particular audience? That hasn't been done. Had we done that correctly, from the beginning, we wouldn't be in what I call not just a climate crisis, but a communications crisis. Jetha, let me ask you this. I mean, this is sort of more of a, a personal reflection question, but when do you remember perhaps first becoming self-aware enough to recognize the power of behavioral science and how it governs risk for yourself and how data maybe drives some of your own behaviors and decision-making? Um, so I did my PhD looking at, actually, let me go back further. I was a sales intern uh, at Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. Mm. <laughs> this is in college. Wow. And I was yeah. selling cardiovascular drugs. So Viagra, Norvas, Caduit, Lipitor were the cardiovascular drugs that I uh, had samples sure. of. And I would go to doctors and I would ask them, you know, what are the biggest reasons mm -hmm. that, because noncompliance was a huge issue. Cardiovascular patients yeah. were not taking their statins, for example, Lipitor was one of my drugs. And it was like a 50 to 70% non-compliance to statins broadly as a category of drugs to treat high cholesterol. And I would ask doctors like, why aren't patients following your instructions? Like, and their response was, we don't know. There's, I mean, laziness, forgetfulness, too expensive, but this drug was generic. And yeah. laziness was solved too, because it was, um, there was like, at this point, there were alarm reminders and other pills that had to be taken that, I mean, there was so many interventions had come up to address what everybody thought were the reasons behind these high rates of patient noncompliance. That was the moment that I started thinking, I need to study, I need to understand mm -hmm. what's behind these high levels of noncompliance. 
And that's what brought me to behavioral science. Why do people behave the way they do, even when it's not in their best interest? When you had that sort of aha moment, did reflecting on even earlier experiences growing up make that much more sense to you? And, and did it maybe give you a new sense of empowerment as the more and more that you continue to sort of study this? Yeah, definitely. I think what I learned coming out of the study and pursuit of behavioral science was that we, uh, we really dig in our heels into our tribes, into our cultures, mm. and we find a lot of trust in those who look like us and those who have shared beliefs, especially the South Asian diaspora in different countries. It, they become these yeah. little self-sufficient, sometimes even resistant to outside interaction to maintain that trust. And that's where information is shared and picked up. And even if some of this information isn't actually entrenched in any sort of science, it, it will still very much influence choices. So I'm thinking about like my grandmothers and who came and lived with us in uh, America where I was born, but they came from Calcutta, yeah. India. And their, their like insistence on turmeric just solving everything, right? And sure. And just not needing prescription drugs and not needing like opinions of those outside of the Indian community at all, but rather here is something that you dig your heels into and hold on to even more so because of how closely linked to your culture and identity it is. That it So studying behavioral science helped me understand that a little bit, like why people are so stubborn when it comes to receiving new information, especially when it conflicts with existing identities, like culture and identities. So behavioral science begins to explain that. It begins to um, explain why why there's these deep-rooted connections that cannot be infiltrated by data, by science, by facts. And it's why we need a better way to communicate to reach people. But identity identity and culture is a a very, very powerful driver of behavior. That that same identity, that culture, that tribalism, whether you identify as... South Asian American, Indian American, Bengali American, driven by language, by all the different things that connect us in the community. Um, is it basically a, a barrier sometimes towards being a centrist and discovering other points of view and being empathic to those points of view? And, and yet, at the same time, it, you know, we embrace that. We crave it. We, we want that sort of tribal mentality you know, to pervade kind of many of the traditions and the things that we cling on to? Yeah, good question. I think it's a it's a constant balance that we're seeking between the two. I think for everyone, not just South Asians, but generally speaking, anyone who is inquisitive or looking to override their intrinsic wiring, which I had to do as part of my academic trajectory in behavioral science, um, but so many scientists, regardless of whether or not they're a social science, but anyone who is pursuing training in the scientific method has to put that first and foremost. So it's it's walking that fine line and finding the pros and cons of both. But I personally will always lead as a scientist um, yeah. that is always looking to put the facts first because we need to and we can actively overcome that intrinsic wiring that leads us astray, makes us make irrational decisions often, unfortunately. But that doesn't mean that there aren't perks 
and positive takeaways from our identities and our cultures, even if they might not always be the most rational. I was just going to say, I wonder if at some point you have to constantly or even very methodically rewire your thinking, or does it just lead to a lot of code switching depending on the community that you're trying to communicate with or policy makers or stakeholders that you're, you're trying to influence? Ooh, Abate, you were just like excellent question after excellent question. It's almost like you have a podcast and you've done this before or something. Look at that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, now you've brought me to my TED Talk. I'm not actually being facetious. This is actually what I'm developing as my TED Talk. <laughs> there you go. Well, hey, I'm, I'm glad. I'm grateful to get a small preview. But, but yeah, I mean, do you find yourself constantly having to not really shape shift, but like, you know, tweak the wiring a little bit intrinsically? Yeah, I think that's really important to do that, but it's important to identify those who have to tweak less as communicators for relevant and vital information to different public's mm-hmm. communities. The more you look like the people you're communicating to, they're, the more perceived trust, the more perceived shared values, and the more likelihood that they will respond positively to whatever message you are trying to get across, right? I thought I could get on Bill O'Reilly and basically talk about climate change and all the benefits of, you know, benefits of changing our behaviors and um, adopting technologies that were affordable, that are becoming increasingly affordable, like solar panels on your roof, et cetera. And I thought the audience, I didn't think the audience would be receptive necessarily, but um, I didn't expect the backlash that I got, some of which was like, go back to your own country. And I was like, the yeah. foreign country of New Jersey, <laughs> right? right? Like, what do you mean? Yeah. But I, I did get that. I got a lot of, and I continue to get that. And I also get, you know, the irony is I get that from the Indian nationalists and the Indian government when I talk about Modi's efforts on bringing India to sure. uh, to reach its net neutral goals by 2070. And I criticize that 2070 is far too late for the country that yeah. is most vulnerable to climate change impacts out of any country in the world. Um, I think we have to find the right person to communicate the message. So that is not just for not just for your mental health and sanity to reduce the amount of pushback and attacks that you might get, but it's also to truly be effective in reaching different audiences. There is a person that will reach the Bill O'Reilly audience, and that person is like a Catherine Hayhoe, who's a, a climate scientist, and she also happens to be an evangelical Christian right? There's mm. that immediate connection, trust, shared value. Now for her to communicate to this audience will be much more effective. We don't have to be the ones that are communicating to all different audiences. We can be smart about sure. this and realistic about the reality of what works and what doesn't. So I wonder if, <clears throat> is it a mistake or does it become a loss personally when you have that kind of a reaction from someone who's really not prepared to or willing to listen And yet, is the answer to just, you know, go back to the same audience and try the same message or present it in a different way with with someone who's who's going to actually uh, feel a little bit more akin to that particular audience? Um, Would it be a shame and a mistake for you not to go back to the Fox News audience with the same amount of fervor and rigor that you've put into this kind of scientific analysis? Well, I really think we can be smart about this. First of all, I have a lot of compassion for different audiences, including those mm-hmm. that may not be uh, the identity that I I would ever associate with, right? Like I wouldn't yeah. consider myself a, national, a, a Hindu nationalist. I wouldn't consider myself an evangelical Christian 
or, yeah. or a conservative, but I have a lot of compassion for these different audiences because we have more in common as humans than not. We have more sure. universal wiring that is that actually makes us dig our heels into our identities. We want to be part of a group. We long to be part of a tribe um, and we fear being ostracized and, <laughs> and uh, yeah. separated from those groups. That's what our ancestors experienced, right? It's, it's, it's survival. It's the very survival of our ancestors required being part, their safety and survival meant that they needed to stay part of the group and be part of a tribe. So we have to have compassion for different people because we have to understand why they are, they are so adamant about their group identity. And why, if you're, let's say, a conservative in America, you will go along with the low risk of COVID-19, the low risk of climate change to continue to say that you're a conservative in America. And we need to understand that and have compassion for it. So now, do I go back and still try to reach these audiences with the same passion and fervor? That was your question. Um, Not maybe, no. Now what I would do is be much more strategic about how to reach with thinking with my compassion hat on, how to get through to these audiences knowing what they care about. For example, to give you a concrete example, conservatives in America, the one thing that they definitely care about is national security, U.S. national security, our men and women in troops, uh, our men and women in uniform protecting America mm-hmm. and in military theaters around the world. So now why not develop relationships with retired or active military, those that are you know, highly decorated, that have a lot of respect, command a lot of respect in conservative sure. circles, and have them talk about how increasing heat, increasing melting of Arctic ice is putting these men and women at greater risk who are already putting their lives at risk to protect Americans. Now, yeah. these impacts of climate are going to create even greater risk for these for these troops because they can't train when it's too hot. So now it's, it's affecting our military preparedness. And it sounds a lot like the power is through allyship and and bringing exactly. and building coalitions of of these folks. Shit that collectively changing behaviors or even analyzing those behaviors through data and through science and being incredibly radicalized towards that science. Like you mentioned so many times, it comes down to trust. So, so how do you go about cultivating trust with your stakeholders, with your audiences, and, and most importantly, maintaining it, especially in a world where a lot of times the fleeting nature of attention and mm-hmm. the news cycles can change often minute to minute? We, we do have a bunch of different identities. I know I've been talking about kind of like the top identities that people lead with, like their religion or their race or, you know, the ones that are kind of obvious. But we the one identity that we all share is we're all human beings and we really do have more in common than we don't. We're all universally wired to not perceive risks that are slow moving and far away. It doesn't matter if you're a conservative evangelical Christian in America or a indigenous tribal member in Guam, right? We're, it, we're wired the same way and we have to remember that. So we need to we need to actually start with our shared identity as humans and then go from there. Maybe we're both soccer coaches, right? Maybe in America, if you find somebody on two different sides of the political spectrum and you're trying to have a conversation and trying to find some common ground, build that trust, 
What it, what do you have in common? Are you both soccer coaches? Do you both lead your respective church congregations? Are you both parents? Like, what can you find to actually kick off a conversation? Start there. And it'll help us usher in solutions. And there's many solutions. There's We're not trying to pound one solution over another into sure. reality. We want to bring in behavioral interventions. We want to bring in clean energy solutions for the climate crisis, uh, clean energy taxes that that some some communities will be much more open to than others. All of these are on the table. And the way to actually move these solutions forward and to progress us towards a cleaner, brighter, more equitable future is if we can start by having that conversation with that shared identity hat on, recognizing that we're human beings. And ultimately, if we are winning for our communities in terms of creating a better, more breathable future, then we're all winning, right? So we all we all share that in common. And that's something that we have to remember as we communicate with one another. Look, Chetta, focusing on universal humanity and finding common ground seem like incredibly important and great ideas to start with. Thank you so, so much for, for joining us today. What a treat. And I hope you'll come back and join us again sometime. It would be my pleasure. Thank you, Abe. Thanks so much again, Chetta. It's high time to reset and make new goals. Let's all raise the bar for better climate action as a gift to humanity and our beloved planet. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dharndekar. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dharndekar, and I share stories about people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Listen online at ruckusavenueradio.com and on the Dash Radio app, or wherever you get your podcast. This is Indy Rishi Singh from Spaceship Earth. Download the Dash Radio app, follow us on social media at Ruckus Avenue Radio, and visit ruckusavenueradio.com for the latest on our station, the flows, the glows, and all the shows. Check it out.